Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. In Acts chapter 16 and Acts chapter 17, we have the historical record of Paul's second missionary journey. And there were a number of events that took place, especially in Acts chapter 16, that I would like to draw your attention to in order to have a greater understanding of the ministry of the Apostle Paul and the circumstances that he was confronted with when he was going out into the world presenting the gospel of the Lord Jesus. The first thing that I would like to draw your attention to is that there were several people who were baptized. What's interesting about this is that baptism had not been mentioned for several chapters. The last time that baptism was mentioned was back in Acts chapter 10, when Peter was speaking with Cornelius, and Cornelius received the message of the gospel. He was saved by the restoration of the Holy Spirit, and then he was baptized after that. The subject of baptism wasn't really mentioned beyond that chapter because of the purpose of baptism, because the the meaning behind baptism, because of where it came from, what it was used for. Because of its meaning and purpose, it was not mentioned beyond Acts chapter 11, because the purpose of it was to convert a Gentile to Judaism. That is what baptism was used for. It didn't start with John the Baptist. It started with the Pharisees as a means of converting a Gentile to Judaism. And so when John the Baptist came on the scene, baptism was certainly nothing new. What was so new, what was so different, what was so unique was that he wasn't baptizing Gentiles. What was so different was that he was baptizing Jews. That was what was so important about John's baptism. He was declaring that a Jew was just as unclean as a Gentile. He needed to repent and turn to the living God just as a Gentile did. That was the meaning behind John's baptism. That and also John proclaimed that the baptism that he was conducting was also to be used in order to aid him in being able to identify who the Messiah would truly be, and the Messiah would be the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, not with water. So that's the history of baptism, and baptism was then used by the early church because it was assumed that a person would have to recommit or commit their lives to Judaism in order to participate in the Messiah to participate in the new kingdom that the Lord Jesus was building. That was an assumption that was made until Acts chapter 11, when the early church convened, discussed this matter with Peter after he returned from the house of Cornelius, and acknowledged that a Gentile could actually be saved without first becoming a Jew. And so when this was acknowledged, when this was understood, baptism wasn't mentioned in the book of Acts from Acts chapter 11, because there was no purpose in it anymore. The purpose of it was to ensure proper conversion, but when it was acknowledged that a person did not have to convert to Judaism first before they became a Christian, baptism became relatively obsolete in the doctrines of the church at that time. But then in Acts chapter 16, we see a couple of baptisms take place, or at least the subject of baptism is mentioned. And so I really wanted to mention this as something to recognize and as something to consider as part of the history of the early church, and this is recorded in Paul's second missionary journey, beginning in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. In Acts chapter 16, verse 14, it says, A woman named Lydia, from the city of Theatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, 
was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Now, what's important to recognize here is that it is mentioned that she is a worshiper of God. This would mean that she was someone who converted to Judaism or who was a Jew. She is considered to be a worshiper of the God of Israel. That's what this is referring to. And so if she is someone who already believes in the living God, she is either familiar with the doctrine of baptism as the means of conversion, being a Jew, or she was a Gentile who converted to Judaism through the ritual of baptism, of water baptism, that is. And so when you continue to read into verse 15, it says, And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And so in verse 15, it's mentioned that she and her household were baptized. Now, it could be that this is referring to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that certainly is a distinct possibility because there is not enough information given here in order for us to distinguish between water baptism and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I personally believe that that is a possibility. However, I personally think that Lydia was probably a Greek who converted to Judaism. That's just an opinion that I have. I have no justification for that. It's just something that I'm considering based on the fact that she's living in this area, that she is recognized as a worshiper of God and not really recognized as a Jew. I think because of that, she probably was a Gentile who converted to Judaism, and so she would be familiar with the doctrine of baptism in water. And so I believe that she probably went through the ritual cleansing as a means of converting to the Lord Jesus in accordance with the message of the baptism of John. And through that, then she also believed in the Lord Jesus as the Messiah, placed her faith and dependency and trust in him. And as a result, I believe that she was then baptized by the Holy Spirit, not baptized by Paul or somebody else. But of course, I can't say that with firm conviction, just because there is not that much information that's given here in this section in the scriptures. But I think it's important to at least acknowledge, to look at and to understand that this is something that was taking place and to see it for what it is. Of course, even if she was baptized in water, that doesn't mean that it was necessary or mandatory. This is only a description of the events that took place. It doesn't mean that this is the model which everyone needs to follow in order to be saved. And if they do not follow this model, then that means that they are lost. That's not what that means. It only means that these are the events that unfolded. We don't have an explanation as to why they necessarily unfolded the way that they did. We can at least look at the record and see what did take place, and then we can make assumptions if necessary in order to try and gain a better understanding. But either way, I thought it was definitely worth mentioning. The other occurrence of baptism then takes place later on in chapter 16 in verse 33 with respect to the jailer who was responsible to ensure that Paul and Silas were kept under guard to ensure that they were locked up and could not escape. And in verse 30, he asked, what he must do in order to be saved. And then in verse 31, they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. This is referring to the jailer. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And so in order to be saved, they needed to, of course, believe in the Lord Jesus. But after that, the jailer decided that he wanted to be baptized, he and his household. And of course, there's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong with it at all. If a person wanted to be baptized in water, then they certainly could be. And if somebody was to ask me to do that, I certainly would be very thankful for the privilege of being involved in that transition and that change in their life. 
However, I would want the person to understand that it certainly is not necessary for their salvation. It is only a statement. It is only a ritual that we perform as part of the codification of our belief, but we certainly don't need to do that. It's just simply a personal choice. It's much more important to understand its history and its purpose, what it was used for, and how it was used by the Lord in order to convey the baptism that he would do with the Holy Spirit. And again, the Holy Spirit could be referred to here in this baptism that he was baptized by the Holy Spirit. I can baptize you with water. Paul could have baptized you with water. Apollos could have baptized you with water. Your pastor can baptize you with water. But there's only one person who can baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and that's the Lord Jesus. And that's the one that really matters, because that is the one that we receive as our salvation. It is the identification with the Holy Spirit, is the restoration of the Holy Spirit, is being enveloped, encompassed by the Holy Spirit. That's the baptism that we really need to understand, that we really need to participate in. But because these baptisms were mentioned here in Acts chapter 16, I thought it would be important to bring it up. There's another baptism that is mentioned in a later chapter, that's at the end of Acts chapter 18 and the beginning of Acts chapter 19 with respect to Apollos, but I'll of course refer to that a little bit later. The other thing that I found very interesting in Acts chapter 16 was the circumstance of Paul casting out a demon from a slave girl who was following him around, telling people that he was the representative of the Most High God. This is described in Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 16, where it says, It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days, but... Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. What's interesting here is that we have this spirit who is testifying that they are representatives or bondservants of the Most High God. Why would it be that Paul would be irritated? Why would he be annoyed by this slave girl if if there is this testimony that's coming forward? Well, first of all, it could be that the Spirit was doing this in a very mocking or a ridiculing way. We don't quite know what the attitude would have been of the Spirit by going out and telling people that they were bondservants. It may have been ridiculing them in that context. But the other thing is is that if the Spirit was being quite sincere about Paul being a bondservant and giving testimony, then I don't think Paul would want the testimony of the demon because I personally believe that a demon is a poor character witness. And so I think that Paul may have shared that kind of an opinion of a spirit if it was testifying on his behalf, that it is a poor character witness. You don't really want demons to testify on your behalf because there is this belief that a demon, and I sincerely believe that this belief is correct, that a demon is not someone to be trusted, that a demon is not someone who is looking out for your best interests. And so because of that, it's better to have testimony from someone else than it is to have testimony from the devil even if the testimony is correct. And because of this casting out of the Spirit, Paul and Silas were both imprisoned, and then we have the history of what took place while they were imprisoned, and of course the jailer believed, and that's the end of Acts chapter 16. And so these are a few things that I thought were worth mentioning. But what's really interesting to me, I mean, what's really interesting about Acts chapter 16 is that we have this description of the Holy Spirit guiding Paul and Silas. I personally believe that that is the most interesting part of Acts chapter 16, 
And also what's very interesting about his second missionary journey, because we don't have that kind of a description to his first missionary journey, that the Holy Spirit was really directly involved and actively participating in his ministry. This is something that apparently seemed to take place more in his second missionary journey, or at least we have more of a record of the Holy Spirit actually being more involved than perhaps he was involved in the first missionary journey. I just found it very interesting that the Holy Spirit is referred to as more of an active participant. For example, in Acts chapter 16, Verse 6, it says that they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And then in verse 7, and after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go to Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. There's an active involvement here of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of the Apostle Paul and the ministry of Silas. There's an active involvement that was not described in his first missionary journey. Again, I'm not meaning to say that the Holy Spirit was not actively involved in his first missionary journey. I'm just mentioning that here it is unique for the Spirit to be mentioned, especially in this context, that apparently they were guided, really guided, by the Holy Spirit in this case. Now, again, it doesn't mean that they weren't guided before. It just means that there is this special mentioning of them being guided by the Holy Spirit. Now, it could very well be that this is a good indicator as well. This indicates that there are times when we are not guided by the Holy Spirit. There are times when he does not intervene in any specific way, that he doesn't direct us to avoid a certain region or direct us to go into a certain region if we were missionaries. To make a special effort to say that Paul was directed by the Holy Spirit, I believe is an indicator that says that there are times when he was not directed by the Holy Spirit. This is worth noting, this is worth paying attention to, because it says an awful lot about our relationship with our God, that it is more of a relationship than I believe many people are aware of, that the relationship with our God is that there are two individual parties, two individual persons who are actively involved in this world, that in this case there is Paul and there also is the Holy Spirit, that they are both involved in the world that they are both actively involved in people's lives, to include each other's lives. Paul could certainly have refused to do what the Holy Spirit said. I personally believe that he had the liberty and the freedom to, to go where he wanted to, but he decided to respond to the prompting and the direction of the Holy Spirit of God in this case, and through that they were actively involved together in a much more productive way. But the special mention of this should also give you an indication that there are times when the Holy Spirit is not going to direct a person, he's not going to direct you, and that you're going to have to make choices about where you are going to go and what you are going to do and who you are going to speak with, that there are many times when you will have to make those kinds of choices on your own, and that he will not give you any special directive. It doesn't mean that he's not going to be with you. I certainly do believe that he will be with you and that he will be there and he will participate as you are participating. But it doesn't mean that he's always going to direct you in every aspect of your life. It doesn't mean that he has complete sovereignty and complete control over every molecule in the universe. I do believe that he could take that kind of control if he wanted to. But to make this special mention here gives me more of an indication that God is actively participating in our daily lives than anything. I think this is very difficult for people to understand and for people to grasp because there is a very common theology in the Christian world today, a common theology of sovereignty or free will. This subject of sovereignty or free will is very common 
in various discussions within Christian churches and Bible studies and other gatherings, that there are so many people who are so focused on, is God in control or is he not in control? Are we making choices? Are we not making choices? To what extent does he have sovereignty over us? To what extent do we have free will? I think because of this argument, people completely neglect and completely avoid the issues of personal relationship. I think people find it very difficult to grapple with or to grasp what it means to have a personal relationship with the living God because they're so concerned with or so consumed with this notion of whether or not God is in total and absolute control and to what degree that they completely miss out on God being an active participant in our daily lives. So I think this can be very difficult for a person to notice, and so I really wanted to bring it out. I really wanted to mention this. But this leads us into a whole other important subject, and that is what does it mean to be led by the Holy Spirit, or what does it mean to be guided by the Holy Spirit, and how do we know when the Holy Spirit is guiding us in one way or when he's not guiding us? How do we know? How can we tell? How did Paul know? How did Silas know? How would they have known? Why is it recorded here in this way? Did Luke really write this with great confidence, believing it himself, or was it just simply the testimony of Paul that Luke wrote down and said, well, Paul said that the Holy Spirit forbade him to go into this area. I don't know if that really was the case, but that's what he said, and so I'm writing it down. Or did he write it down saying, this is definitely what happened? Again, how would they know? When we hear from the Holy Spirit, how do we know it really is him who is speaking to us? Or are we ever going to hear from the Holy Spirit in this way? Is he ever going to guide us in this way? There are many Christians who do sincerely struggle with this question, and I think it's a legitimate concern. It's a very legitimate question to ask. It's a very legitimate question to consider. How do we know if we are being guided by the Holy Spirit? or if we are making choices on our own behalf and the Holy Spirit is just simply going along with us, how can we really know? How can we tell? Well, I personally believe that I know the voice of my God. I know the voice of the Holy Spirit in my life. I personally have great confidence that when the Lord speaks to me, I know. But there is no way that I can teach anybody how they can know that the Holy Spirit is speaking to them. There's no way that I can teach anyone to know that their God is guiding them. I don't know how to do that because I don't know how this can be intellectually understood or how this can be taught or conveyed in a way that everyone can appreciate or that everyone can then grow in or so that everyone can then know, well, if this comes to mind or if this happens, I can go down this checklist and say, yeah, it looks like there's a very high probability that God is speaking to me at this moment. I honestly don't know of any way to do that. I don't think that's very real. I think that is a very poor approach to to take. Instead, I just want to tell you that this is a personal experience. I can tell you a little bit about it, but I certainly cannot teach you how this can be real in your life because it may never really be real in your life. And it wouldn't mean that you're any less of a Christian than anybody else. It certainly wouldn't mean that at all. We are Christians if we believe in the Lord Jesus. We are Christians only because of what he has done and what he has already said, not because of what he is doing now or because of what he is saying. That's not what makes us a believer. That is not how we obtain our salvation or walk in our daily lives in a way that we can grow and mature in our faith. We are able to grow and mature in our faith because of what he has done, not because of what he is doing now. That's important to understand. 
Otherwise, it's very easy for a person to become very concerned about their own salvation because they don't see much of an indication that they are being guided by the Holy Spirit. And so they would question as to whether or not the Holy Spirit was even within them at all or whether he was in their life at all. The reason why this issue is really important to many people is mainly because of a fear of failure. I suppose that's probably why many people take this subject very seriously, the subject of how do we hear from our God when they do take it seriously, because of the fear of failure, because there may be some circumstance in your life where you could really lose a lot, or you could experience an incredible amount of pain, or you could experience a significant amount of suffering. The choices that we make in our lives do affect what happens to us. And if we make a good choice, then we may experience a very positive result or positive feedback. Or if we make a bad choice, we could experience very negative feedback of some kind. And so when we consider the choices that we are going to make in our daily lives and we want our God to be involved in these choices and we do want to do what he wants us to do, there is a significant amount of fear that can build up within a person when being confronted with this because of the uncertainty as to whether or not their God is truly guiding them in a certain direction or whether or not he is telling them to do one thing or another. I have heard many testimonies of people who have said that they thought that the Lord wanted them to do one thing, but they experienced a significant amount of loss and suffering and failure in their life, and so they were beginning to question if God really wanted them to do that or not, if they heard the Lord correctly or not. And other people hear these testimonies and hear of these testimonies. And when they hear of these kinds of situations happening in other people's lives, they may hesitate to make certain choices because they are afraid, legitimately afraid of what they may lose or how they may experience a lot more suffering in their life because of what they decide to do. There is this assumption, however, what this means is that there is this assumption that the Holy Spirit, your God, will only guide you in a way that will be profitable to you. That's what people are assuming when they take this kind of a position. People will often assume that the Lord their God is only going to direct them in a way that will enable this person to be blessed in their flesh. That's that's what that means is that there is this common belief that if the Lord wants you to go to a certain place, if he wants you to go to a certain place, then the only reason really why he would want you to go to that place is so that he can bless your flesh. And if you go to that place and you experience a significant amount of loss or failure, then that must mean that the Lord did not guide you really, but that you were deceived into thinking that he wanted you to go there. Or if the Lord wants you to do something specific, If he wants you to do something specific and that turns out to be disastrous to you in some way, then people will question as to whether or not the Lord really wanted that to happen in your life. But on the other hand, there's this significant assumption that if you go to a certain place and you experience a great deal of benefit from going to that place, then that must have been the Lord, your God, in your life. Or if you make a decision to do a certain thing and it turns out to be very successful, then it is assumed that the Lord is definitely involved. He was involved in inspiring you and encouraging you to make that kind of a decision. And so when people think about hearing from the Holy Spirit, in most cases, this is what they're thinking. They're thinking about the Holy Spirit speaking to them in order to direct and guide them in order to experience greater blessings in their flesh. And if it doesn't happen and instead something negative happens, then it must mean that there was some deception involved. 
But I certainly don't believe this. I believe that if the Holy Spirit is going to direct me in any particular way to say or do anything specific, if he's going to direct me to go anywhere specific, if he's going to direct me not to go or do anything specific, if that's the case, if he's going to intervene in my life in any way to encourage me or to guide me or to lead me, I will not look at the results as the means of evaluating the legitimacy or the illegitimacy as to whether or not I was guided by the Holy Spirit. I certainly will not be concerned about any results whatsoever. That is not how I measure my relationship with my God. I am only concerned about hearing from my God and doing what he wants me to do, saying what he wants me to say, being involved with what he wants me to be involved in. And so if I go somewhere and I experience great injury or if I die, it doesn't matter because if I know who sent me and if I trust and believe that he truly wants me to do something or go somewhere or say something or not say something, if I truly trust and believe in my God, then it won't matter what the results are because what is more important to me is the relationship I have with my God, not the relationship that I have with the world or how I may benefit or how I may lose. I am more concerned with being involved in what he is doing than I am concerned with being involved in what I am doing. And while I may see a significant amount of failure from my perspective, that doesn't mean that from his perspective there isn't a great deal of success. Great success has occurred as a result of the decision that I made to respond to my God. And I may know what the results are, or I may never know what the results are, or there may never be any results of any significance whatsoever, that it may not have been about any results at all. What is more important to me is that I hear from my God and that I do what he says and I say what he tells me to say. That is the only thing that is important to me. So regardless of what I gain or what I lose, it won't matter because I am experiencing a personal interactive relationship with the one who created me. And that to me is what is of greater importance. Now, with regards to the subject of hearing from the Holy Spirit, I have produced a separate radio program on this subject, and I would like to encourage you to listen to that program in order to perhaps gain some greater insights into this subject. But I am out of time for this radio broadcast, and so I will have to continue into Acts chapter 17 in the next radio program. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net you